playoffs wraps up in spectacular fashion. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance here with you for another week. Drancer, of course, you can read his work covering the team at The Athletic as well. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. What a weekend. What a weekend of playoff hockey. I'm still catching my breath. Double Game 7 overtimes yesterday uh, after a full weekend packed with Game 7s in the first round, Drancer. Fantastic, incredible drama, all of it, everything you would have wanted from the end of Round 1. I think it's fair to say that Round 1 went out with a bang. Just yes. like every wild card team. <laughs> it came in with a bit of a whimper, but it went out strong. Oh. It went out extremely, extremely strong. It, it was a great weekend of hockey. I mean, look, I, I think I saw the last time there was two Game 7 overtimes uh, on the same day. It was like 25 years ago. Like right. Todd Marchant was one of the guys scoring the winner. That's how long ago it was. So well, to get and, that, and last night we get Panarin and Gaudreau making world-class shots. You know, I mean, that was awesome. A ton of fun. And, you know... It was a funny contrast last night, too, because the Rangers were basically the Dallas Stars. <laughs> well, I think Pittsburgh was the better team in six of seven games. <clears throat> but because the Penguins were reduced to playing their third goaltender for in six of the seven, mm-hmm. and because Sidney Crosby missed two, and because the Rangers got every break, they got like... Years worth of breaks over three games, right? From the goalie injuries, the the health thing, no suspension for Truba on the on the Crosby hit, and then they tie the game up with five minutes to go because a Pittsburgh player's helmet falls off. I mean, just an immaculate series of of good bounces for the Rangers. The Rangers got more bounces in three years or three games than the Toronto Maple Leafs have had in ten years. It was incredible, like incredible. And it's this reminder that sometimes, in hockey, the Red Seas part for you. You know, like, all of a sudden you're running downhill and everything's going your way, and it's just incredible. And I think you have to be careful giving too much credit to teams, right? I mean, there's going to be a ton of columns written in New York about, like, the resilience of the Rangers. I've actually already seen the first um, analytics can't measure heart in the wild from the New York press. Oh, fantastic. So we're getting that. We're Love that it. Up. Yeah. Love it. And while analytics are struggling to measure heart, and the Rangers clearly have that dog in them. <laughs> it's impo- one of those idiots who believe in analytics. <laughs> it's impossible how many things went their way. Like, it's impossible to believe, right? Sometimes the Red Seas part for you. And sometimes they don't. They just don't. And, you know, in the Calgary Flames' case, they faced a goaltender in Jake Ottinger who had a historic playoff, probably the best playoff performance we've seen from a goalie in an individual series ever. Certainly yeah, since 07. a long, long time. Certainly yeah. since 07. By, by, uh, by the... Uh, goal saved above average metric that evolving hockey tracks. Uh, it's the best single individual performance in a playoff series. Although it should be noted, he played seven games and third all time is Thatcher Demko against the Vegas Golden Knights, and he only appeared in four. Only appeared in four games. So if Demko had started a couple more, <laughs> he might be there. He might be there. But anyway, Ottinger was Demko quality, bubble Demko quality goaltending for the Dallas Stars. 
And, you know, I know that that game could have gone any either way. There was definitely five minutes or so in overtime where the Stars were pressing. And the Calgary Flames definitely played with fire. And I'd also note this. The Calgary Flames crushed that game in terms of, you know, by, by the end of regulation, the Dallas Stars had taken 43 shot attempts. The Calgary Flames recorded their 43rd shot attempt 22 minutes into the game, right? Like, just ridiculous, the, the level of control, territorial dominance that the Flames exercised on last night's game. And yet, when Mark Stone and Eric Goodbranson combined for 25 of those shot attempts... Michael Stone, but yeah. Sorry, what did I say? Mark. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that would no, be good. Yeah, so, <laughs> if you put Mark Stone on that Calgary team. You're really cooking with fire then. Michael Stone. Um, you know, the, the, the Stone whose first name I don't even care to remember. <laughs> when those guys combine for 25 shot attempts, you're kind of putting the opposition goaltender in a position to look good, right? Like, I didn't feel like Calgary was necessarily at their best, right? I don't think they exerted enough pressure ultimately on Jake Ottinger for all of their control. And so, you know, you, you sort of look at that series and think things actually went Dallas's way the whole time. And it didn't matter because Calgary was that much better, even without their top pair defensemen. And, and that's just your reminder, right? If the New York Rangers had had the Pittsburgh Penguins as luck, that was a four game series. The Pittsburgh Penguins got dramatically unlucky and still should have won the series in game seven overtime. They didn't, but they still should have. The Dallas Stars had everything going their way, likewise. A historic goaltending performance. The other team's best defenseman out. And they still lost because the other team was materially better. And this is this is what I talk about when I talk about control, when I talk about structure, when I talk about how um, you know, the the lie that we believe that if you get in anything can happen is just that. It's a lie. Hockey is a sport committed to taking the most ridiculous path possible to a logical conclusion. And so in a first-round series, in one game, certainly we all know, we've all seen it a million times. Anything can, in fact, happen, and Mm -hmm. does. But to win a cup, you need to play probably 23 to 25 games, at least. And once you're starting to play that amount of games, quality matters, talent matters, structure matters, control matters. Which is why any team can beat any other team in Game 7, any team can beat any other team in a seven-game series. But not any team can win the cup. And as we sit here with eight teams remaining, right? Eight teams remaining. We're looking at two lower-seeded teams that advanced past the first round. Those lower-seeded teams are the last three cup winners. The St. Louis Blues and the Tampa Bay Lightning. A testament to the fact that those aren't just lower-seeded teams. Those teams are damn good. And you're looking at five of the seven elite teams that we sort of pigeonholed having advanced. Two of them will play each other, but there's a real chance that the final four consists of at least three elite teams and, and maybe one Cinderella club, or one Cinderella side. And but, even even I mean, there's a good chance it's all four. It's four elite teams, hundred percent. Right? Yeah. But also of those sin, quote unquote Cinderella sides, we're lumping in a St. Louis Blues team that had roughly 110 points and generates scoring chances from the slot better than anyone else in the league and has won the cup in, in recent years. A New York Rangers team that had 110 points, not exactly a Cinderella. And the Vesna winner and a, a Hart nominee. And the team that employs McDavid. Yeah. So, stop shooting for 96 and, and a miracle playoff berth. Like, that cannot be acceptable anymore. We must banish it. We must banish just get in and anything can happen from our lexicon, from our goals. We must aim higher. We must banish meaningful games in March. Forever 
from our hockey lexicon. Like, new management, new day in Vancouver, new standards too. Meaningful games in March are the games where you should be resting your best players or managing their minutes carefully in preparation for the actual meaningful games which are played in April, May, and June. We just get in and anything can happen. Look, it's fun to get in. I would rather be covering playoff games than than watching other teams and, and trying to apply the lessons of those series to the Vancouver Canucks. I would far rather this city be in its own red lot, you know, losing its collective minds over a big yeah. playoff overtime, win or lose, than watching the Calgary Flames do it and just being like, oh, that's cute. Brady Kachuk is there. Yeah, that's that's kind of nice. I hope the Flames lose. That'd be. I don't really want to see the Battle of Alberta. Then I'll have to root for the Meteor. Like I want more than that. And so it's still good to make the playoffs. It's still good to make the playoffs. That's still your goal. I still want Canucks players. I still want Canucks coaches to be focused on that. But over the long haul, I want Canucks management to be aiming an awful lot higher than just just get in and anything can happen. I want them to be building something durable and meaningful for me to cover. And for our listeners to enjoy. And I don't think those two things are, you know, in, I, I look, they're not in conflict. Yeah, they don't have to be in conflict. They're obviously, there's there's competitive cycles. And when you're building, you're tearing down a little bit and building up. And sure. I understand that. But I, we had this discussion with the National Predators. It's not as if them making the playoffs sets their franchise back, right? The Canucks making the bubble playoffs. What happened after that set the franchise back. But that mere experience but I kind of set the franchise with back. Really? You think so? Well, I disagreed with you in that I thought they'd, in making the playoffs in 21, I thought they had taken a step back because they missed an opportunity to sell a ton of pieces. Sure. So sure. Because, I, I but, agreed but, with you this year, but, but I didn't the year prior. But the difference is that's not because they made the playoffs. That's because they prioritized just making the playoffs at the expense of long-term thinking, right? I, so that's the difference I would point I'm out. I'm all for making the playoffs. I'm not all for desperately trying yes. to be the 10th that's best team the in the West. It's not inherently bad to be a low seed in the playoffs. It's inherently bad if that's your aim, if that's your goal, if that's what you're using all your resources and all your energy to try to do, right? It's like anything in life. If you really need something, right? If you really need to get the pitch, get the job, get the girl, and you show up and you're like, hi, oh my God, this really matters. You're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. You have to be cool, calm, and collected. You have to proceed with a sense of you know, legitimate ambition and confidence. You have to be self-confident enough to know you can replace players, right? To to conduct yourself in a certain way. And it's not that the Canucks have been making win-now moves. There's nothing inherently bad about making win-now moves. I'm all for it. There's nothing inherently bad about being capped out. The best teams in hockey are always capped out. The problems are when your win-now moves stem from a place of desperation, Right? You're always going to be making misguided bets. The problem is when you're capped out to build, like in service of building the 10th best team in the Pacific or in the West, the fifth best team in the Pacific, that's pathetic. That's pathetic. And this or, or this market deserves better. And based on the way we're hearing Rutherford and Alvin talk, I'm happy to report, I think they're in for better, which, you know, music to my ears should be music to the fans ears too. Yeah, that's certainly the indication that they've given, is that they're they're shooting for higher than that. The, the problem with Cinderella is the clock strikes midnight. Very good. That's the problem. 
I saw the light bulb go off on your head, <laughs> and your, over your head in real time on that one. Yeah. I was like, oh, here we go. Something good is coming here. Yeah. Nailed it. Uh, 650-650, by the way, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And as we talk about kind of the road forward for the Canucks, uh, a couple of things I want to get into. First of all, you have an article up at The Athletic today kind of outlining their salary cap situation going into the offseason, which oh, I want to dive into. Oh, that's good radio, baby. Oh, yeah. Nothing like breaking down the salary <laughs> cap sheet. Let's but go. There's a lot of um, there, there's a lot of fascinating decisions that they're going to have to make. So we'll get into that. And I should also just mention as we talk about uh, Jim Rutherford and some of the things he's had to say. Uh, Rutherford was interviewed by Frank Cervelli and Jason Greger on the Daily Faceoff podcast, which was released this morning. And we'll talk about some of that as well throughout the course of the show. Although a lot of it is reiterating, you know, some of the same themes we've heard repeatedly. From Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvine talking about cap space, flexibility, structure, all of those uh, great things that we've become so familiar with under the new regime here in Vancouver. But looking at the Canucks salary cap situation and man, have we become very, very, very familiar with the idea that the Canucks are going to be in kind of dire straits as it comes to the salary cap every summer, summer after summer after summer, or off-season after off-season, I should say, with the weird schedule the last couple of years. What is the kind of, you know, from 30,000 feet overview, big picture snapshot of where they stand on the salary, uh, salary cap going into the summer? So for the first time since 2019, the salary cap will rise by a million dollars. The upper limit is projected to rise by a million dollars to $82.5 And while, you know, $1 million doesn't move the needle, right, it does introduce $32 million additional dollars into the overall cap system, which isn't insignificant. For the Canucks, though, every penny matters. And more than anything, it's emblematic. Let's call it emblematic of the fact that the types of dire cap crunches that the team has dealt with over the past two years anyway are behind them, at least at least temporarily. This summer, for the first time in a long time, you can envision the Canucks going out and, and finding a couple of upgrades, meaningful upgrades, without performing significant, like without cauterizing the wound elsewhere, without performing significant cap surgery, without having to buy out contracts or desperately reallocate salary elsewhere from inefficient deals. Now, what happened with the flat cap because of the pandemic, which was genuinely unforeseeable, though, is that it accentuated what was already true about teams, right? It, it, it sort of accelerated how quickly teams had to reckon with their mistakes, right? And it similarly gave additional weight and gravity to those teams that were efficient, right? Teams with efficient books benefited significantly over the past two years. Teams that did not got dinged. There were some other things that happened too. Like if you'd signed players to extensions, like star players to extensions, and then the cap didn't go up the way you'd projected, all of a sudden those long, some of those long-term deals that you may have signed thinking, well, the cap might be $95 million in 2022, mm-hmm. and this will age the way that the Huberto-Barkov deals have, uh, that logic didn't apply. So, if, so, you know, in some ways, the flat cap rewarded bridge contracts, and what happens afterwards could well reward teams that locked in 
um, you know, stability, cost certainty. That locked in during the flat cap period, right? If, Where there was less money to go around. If, if you can get it at that price, then when the cap goes up, it's going to look even better, right? If, if there's a moment in 2026, for example, when the salary cap jumps $12 million, with new TV money, right, plus multiple years of revenue and the player's share of the debt is paid off, right? And in 2026, you could see the cap rise, you know, something like $12 million, like something like we've never seen before, almost yep. NBA-like, right? If you get that moment, in a season when you have Quinn Hughes and Thatcher Demko at 7.8 and, and 5, and all of a sudden the market for backups, backup goaltenders is 4 million, right? And the market for second pair defensemen is 6 million, right? Then you're laughing, laughing. Unfortunately, they're not going to be able to benefit off that with Pedersen, but nonetheless, I mean, there is a real realistic scenario where the cost certainty that the club locked in, at least on two of their three core players, um, you know, could be hugely impactful down the line. Anyway. Canucks have meaningful cap space this year. If I, I've sort of modeled it out. I've assumed, you know, figures between 750K and 1 million for the key RFAs, which I, I consider to be Lamico, Highmore, and Rathbone. I've used the evolving hockey projection to give Brock Besser a $6.5 million settlement. That's probably a little light, but whatever. Well, it gives me something firm and objective to go with yep. as opposed to me just sort of pulling a number out of thin air and being like, yeah, okay. Yeah, this is it. So, or using the qualifying offer, which would obviously reduce uh, my overall projection. Now, the number I get to is the Canucks having, with 21 guys on the 23-man roster and two more bodies to sign, $6.4 million in additional wiggle room. So that $6.4 million, for those of you who like to spend your time on the internet looking at lists of free agents, right? Looking at, looking at the cap sheets of capped out contenders and thinking about trades to improve this roster, daydreaming about what the Canucks could look like. 6.4. That's sort of your, your basic number. Now, I did run that by some team sources, and it was a much rosier number than what they're projecting internally. That's what you'd expect. You always would expect the people with actual skin in the game to be projecting or budgeting more conservatively. Yeah, you plan for, I don't want to say the worst case scenario, but plan for the more difficult scenario. 100%, because then if you have an extra million, it's yeah. like, yay! It's as opposed to, sorry, Faber, I, I wanted to save you from using the drop. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's that's how it works. So, 6.4, but obviously it could be 5.4 if if Besser accepts his qualifying offer. Could go up to 8.1 if they bought out Jason Dickinson, right? So that's good. Like, for the first time in a long time, the Canucks have some meaningful breathing room this offseason. And yet, that money's going to dry up fast, right? I mean, 6.4 divided by 2, let's just say that, sure. right? To add a top four defenseman and a middle six forward, I mean, that's... You, you can get those guys at that price, but not really. Like, one, it's not enough to move the needle for this team. One one additional top four defender would mean a ton, but those guys cost five million. Yeah, if you add, if you take that six point four, and you're somehow able to add a top four D and like, a, a, let's say a middle six forward or third line center, or something. But really, you need a couple. Well, and that's the thing, and also it means you've, I don't want to say gotten lucky because you can kind of put the work in to identify those guys, but you're getting performance above their salary. Right, you know, For what sure I mean? you are. You can't go in and lock in. You're getting a top four with that kind no. of money. You have to get a little bit of luck there. Hundred percent. You're you're definitely signing a guy with warts who can maybe be more exactly. for you than exactly. he has been elsewhere. So, anyway, if you're on the tweaks bandwagon, if you're on the this team is ready, based on what they did under Boudreaux to make a run with just a couple of additional pieces, the Canucks could potentially do that. Here's the problem. Here's the problem you get into really quickly. If you extrapolate like the the Besser six five that I that I gave you, right? You're looking at twenty eight five million in cap space 
for the 2023 offseason. Mm-hmm. That seems like a huge number. Except it's without JT Miller and it's without Bo Horvath. So let's say 16 on that. So now you're getting to you're getting to uh, 12.5. And now say you've taken the five and a half that you have ready to go for this offseason or the or the six. Let's call it six. Now you take the six that we're talking about for this offseason and you commit it to guys on multi-year deals. Now you're looking at six and say you land Kuzmenko. You've got him to resign. Hoaglander, Dermott, Jack Rathbone. All of a sudden, a year from now, you're capped out again just by retaining your team and making some modest upgrades on multi-year deals, right? Cap flexibility is so fragile. And this club has to be hyper aware of it, especially with what they've gone through the last couple of years as a team that didn't even sniff contention, right? They did. They didn't. I know they won around, but like, come on. They weren't close to being an elite team. They've been capped out throughout because of inefficient contractual commitments. It's really vital at this point in the Canucks' team-building cycle that they ditch the win-now desperation that has characterized so much of the past couple of years. It's crucial that they look at this cap space that they have and take modest short-term bets, make modest short-term bets with it, as opposed to spending it all on a guy in the hopes that he moves the needle. I'm not saying don't go out and improve the team, but if you're going out to add material contributors on even mid-sized salaries, those moves have to be accompanied with money going out. There has to be a sense of long-term stewardship, particularly because you've got Horvat and Miller up in the summer of 2023. You've got Patterson up in the summer of 2024. You have to position yourself to get those guys on the ice and to maximize the amount of talent you're able to fit under the upper limit for those 24, 25, 26 seasons when Pedersen and Hughes are going to be 24, 25, right? Like you're going to get to these years where Pedersen and Hughes are at the peak of their powers. Thatcher Demko is not yet 30. It's like those years where you need to be able to graft as much talent as possible onto the roster. Right now, if you went out and spent irresponsibly... You could do it, and you could probably make the playoffs, in my opinion, with where the team is at, with Boudreaux, with all the good vibes that, that you're leaving last season with. I don't think, you, I don't think you're going to miss if you necessarily go out and make win-now moves this offseason. If that's your priority, if, if you say we have to make the playoffs next year and that's where we're going we're to spend all our resources and put all our energy into doing that, you can give yourself a really, really good shot. A really good it. shot. But yeah. you can also still make the playoffs while focusing on opening a meaningful window for this team in, in two or three years. Hearing Rutherford and Alvin talk about it, I think that's the focus. Looking at where this prospect system is at, looking at the cap sheet, looking at the amount of draft picks that this team has made over recent years, like your best bet right now, in my view, is to be very conservative, to make sure that you're placing mid-sized bets with an eye toward the future and going about carving out additional cap flexibility while adding futures that could pay off for you 2025, 2026. For me, that's sort of when the Canucks' next window opens because, unfortunately, as a result of some terrible decisions, some inefficient contracts, and and a complete waffling in terms of overall direction over the past 24 years, unfortunately, I think this club's already kind of sabotaged the first couple of years of the of of, of what could be could have been a window for the Pedersen Hughes core. I now think a little bit of discipline and sanity is going to be required in order to open that window. And I don't think it's forever away. I think it's like 18 months. If you're really disciplined for 18 months 
and do a really good job restocking your prospect pipeline, I legitimately think this team can be among the NHL's, if not among the NHL's elite, then at least on their way up that staircase mm-hmm. 18 to 24 months from now. But it's going to take the club ditching the type of desperate win nowism that has so frequently characterized their operation over the past decade. And when you look at, okay, the amount of, let's use that number, the 6.4 number in cap space to fill out a couple of roster spots, potentially, maybe adding more depth on that as well. When you think about just the ways to do that without sacrificing your future cap flexibility, right? Because the classic way to do it is just, hey, we're going to go and sign a a mid-level defenseman who's on the UFA market. But as soon as you do that, you're locking into, you know, minimum three, probably more like four, maybe even five years, something like that. To fill that spot, and, and you're you're sucking up a lot of that cap space in the future. So if you want to improve the team with that space without committing yourself to the future, I see kind of two primary ways to do it. One is the you know bargain bin shopping approach that we've seen a lot from you know the Florida Panthers with guys like Carter Verhage. I know that was a two year deal initially, but you know two years at one million. Uh, the Leafs with Michael Bunting, Andre Kasha, guys like that. Right? There's those types of deals which would not surprise me at all to see the Canucks pursue. But I think the other one is, and this is something Jim Rutherford mentioned in conversation with Frank Saravelli uh, and Jason Greger on the Daily Faceoff podcast, is there are a lot of really good teams that are going to have to shed salary cap space this summer, right? And you look at a lot of the kind of logical targets for them to try to move, guys on one year who have maybe one year left, right? Like I look at like a, a Patrick Hornquist in Florida. He has one year left on his deal. You know, Evgeny Dadanov in Vegas, has one year left on his deal. So you can get a player like that, and maybe you pick up an asset for your troubles in the process, and that's only a short-term commitment you're making, right? Because that player only has one year left on his deal. So those are kind of the two ways that I see they can go about it. And one of the things Rutherford said on the Daily Faceoff podcast this morning was, we would really like to be in that market of you know taking players from Stanley Cup contenders who need to shed salary, but in order for us to do that, we need to shed some salary ourselves. To be meaningfully in that market, we're going to have to shed some additional salary ourselves. But as you outline it, you know they're not right up against the cap just yet. So they could be one or two moves away from actually being kind of significant players in that market if they want. Right? If it's the right one or two moves. But the problem is, the problem is here, right, to, to get into that market, you also need stuff to deal back. You have to have stuff that teams want yep. to return them that they're like, okay, we need a piece that's going to hit. You know, you, you don't get Jonathan Drew in without Mikhail Sergeyev, right? You don't, or or in the but and in Tampa's case, right? They were looking for a sucker to give them a premium asset, and they found it, right? I mean, uh, the 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 Miller trade is a really good example of this type of deal working, right? The Canucks got J T. Miller in these exact circumstances, and the Tampa Bay Lightning were looking for a sucker. Now, they didn't find one because the Canucks made the playoffs, right? That pick ended up... But because the Canucks had such a strong season, the the Lightning were able to find a team that was still willing to bet against them and, and load up with Blake Coleman, a guy who fit their, their sort of salary cap structure better um, and, and sort of was more in line with what they wanted their identity to become, which was a certain level of hyper-competitiveness, right? A more direct style of play in their bottom six and still worked, right? So... But you need that first to trade. The Canucks can't trade a first for no, that type of player no. with where they're at right now. They don't have enough prospects or, or guys pushing at the fringes of the NHL level to make those types of deals. So, you know, 
they're not going to be positioned to make the next Victor Arvidsson trade, to make the next Devon Taves trade, right? Unless they have more cash in hand, which is again what we're talking about where, where the club needs to spend a couple years being disciplined or at least a year being disciplined and sort of restocking their their arsenal, restocking the avenues available to them to improve. Because it's not just about cap flexibility in terms of playing in that market. And that's why I like your Hornquist example, right? Because you can get paid to take a guy who might actually help you. Yeah, well, again, he's going to move way up the depth chart in Vancouver compared to where he is in Florida, obviously. He might be he might be your PP1 net front guy. Absolutely. Depending on what you do elsewhere. But like he's a righty who's immovable at the net front and has great hands. I mean, he's diminished as a player from his prime days in Pittsburgh where he was unbelievable, top-line caliber, heavy-press guy. But, you know, standing in front of the net is not a skill that leaves you. Right? Like, he's still really good at that. Um, obviously, he scored a breakaway goal, too, so he's still got some game uh, in the last series against the Washington Capitals. Uh, those are the types of moves that I think you're looking at more yeah. in the short term than the Devon Taves-style, JT Miller-style needle-moving deals because... Frankly, there's two sides of this equation. And while the Canucks may be able to open enough cap space to be in that market, they're going to need to significantly upgrade their arsenal of futures before they're meaningful players, particularly when the competition's going to be teams like the LA Kings, who are, you know, who just have an embarrassment of asset wealth. Uh, lots more to get into on the Canucks off-season front. Some good questions coming in. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line you can get your thoughts and questions as in as well we will look ahead also to round two of the stanley cup playoffs which of course gets going tomorrow as a reminder make sure you subscribe to the canucks hour podcast on apple spotify google or wherever you get your podcasts and if you like the show please do leave us a five-star rating and review lots more to come on the other side you've got it on the home of the canucks sportsnet 650 right if you really need to get the pitch Get the job, get the girl, and you show up and you're like, hi! Oh my god, that's pathetic. That's pathetic. Welcome back to the show, Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. We are uh, on an hour earlier today. We're jiggling the schedule around a little bit here because uh, we're playing the Jays and the Mariners so there you go. Nobody can get mad at us for playing the Jays game because it's actually a Mariners game. Uh, we're playing. <laughs> so we're playing the Jays and the Mariners at four. So we're on 11 till noon. For the very vocal five Mariners yes, fans exactly. in Vancouver. Exactly. Uh, you've got your wish today. People's show is on noon till two. Do you think the Mariners finish above 500? I don't know. What's their record? I haven't even checked. They're, What's I think right they're now? three games under. Oh, then no. <laughs> They, they would have, they'd have to be like eight There's games There's a lot above. of season to play. They'd have to be like eight games up for me to choose them to finish above 500. Um, can- Canadian pitcher Matt Brash is sick, though. I just want to throw that out there. I'm a, I'm, a Mar- I'm an M's hater as a general rule. Not not because I actually have any dislike for them. I just think that their fans are like so into young players. And I always hate the teams that are like, look at our prospect pool. It's like, great. Uh, you guys will be good when you trade all of those guys for good players. But... um. But uh, but Matt Brash is sick. Just want to. Uh, so there you go. You can you can hear Mariners Jays at four right here on Sportsnet 650. Uh, but until then, lots of hockey talk coming up. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca. We were talking about uh, the Canucks salary cap situation going into the summer in the first segment, and I just wanted to get this question in. 
Brandon in, in Vancouver says, uh, hey, guys, it sounds like Brock and the Canucks uh, sides are engaging again this week to discuss a, tr- a contract. I've heard it could come in at two to three years. Is that true? And have you heard anything about the number they could settle on? I know you used the kind of $6.5 million that's, number. That's my reporting. <laughs> that is true. That's what I reported. Now, I want to be careful. Like, you know, we present things at The Athletic in those, you know, me and Rick Dollywall work together. We do these what we're hearing pieces. And, you know, we'll be like, hey, look, you know, what we're hearing is that there's some common ground that, you know, both sides would prefer to get a settlement done here. And... You know, we we hear that talks are starting again, starting up again next week in earnest. Um, so we we write that up, and then everyone's like, "Well, this is going to get done quickly. <laughs> this is going to be simple." And it's like, "No, no, no. We we hear that there's a good framework to begin talks, but there is still a very real possibility. Excuse me, that this goes to the wire, and that Besser even accepts his qualifying offer. Like that's very much still on the table. This is a very complex negotiation, and we'll see." how it plays out. I suspect that there's going to be a way to get a settlement done, particularly because there are real disadvantages to accepting a qualifying offer for, for if you're if you're Brock Besser. One of them is that Besser's durability has been something that's sort of held back his overall value over the course of the past few years. Do you really want to sign a one-year deal considering that? Mm-hmm. Or would you prefer to lock in, like, would you prefer to lock in one year at 7-5, even if that's your highest one-year possible compensation? Or would you prefer to lock in, you know, nineteen and a half million, which is a six point five settlement over three, right? I mean, not a hard decision for most of us, right? It might be a little different. Hockey players are super competitive. Some of them want to gamble on themselves, bet on themselves. Fair enough. But you know, th- that's one of them. The other one is is that a qualifying offer is a hundred percent paragraph A salary, which means that it's paid out to you over the course of a full season, one hundred ninety two days uh, between twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three. If you sign an extension, you can structure it so that you get, you know, a front-loaded deal that pays you very close to the amount and comes with a $5 million upfront bonus. And as we all know, and and because these players tend to have very sophisticated, if they're lucky, right, if they have the right representation, if they have good people around them, and I know the Besser does, you know, $5 million lump sum is more valuable to you than $7.5 million in salary if you invest right, if you manage it right. So... Not to mention there's some tax implications for American citizens working in Canada. It's all, it's all rather complex, but there are real reasons to prefer a, 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 a compromise settlement. I sus- like If I was gauging it with a percentage, I'd say something like 66%. Like two-thirds, my expectation is that the, they managed to get a settlement. But that's still a very real possibility. That this ends up getting into July and getting into will or won't the team consider club elected arbitration? Will or won't the team tender him a qualifying offer? Will Besser accept the qualifying offer? Like there is still a real chance of that, even though I do suspect that a settlement is more likely. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, and the interesting thing, you know, you said there that hockey players are so competitive, right? So is there a world where he takes the kind of one-year bet-on-myself approach, sign for 7.5, the qualifying offer, and then see what happens down the road? And I think if you're just doing it strictly from kind of a math perspective, how do you most maximize Brock Besser's earnings? It's probably that route, right? Bet on yourself, take the 7.5, try to cash in after that at some point. High risk, high reward. High risk, high reward. The thing is, as, as competitive as hockey players are, how often do we see them side for the security and the term right when they have the chance to do it and that's changed a little bit like you're seeing some you know patrick line a even austin matthews only going five years on his second deal things like that 
But by and large, my kind of assumption is that a hockey player is going to take the term if it's available to them. And that makes sense. It's an extraordinarily physical, dangerous, tough game, right? Like, there's something to be said for just locking in, you know, in Bester's case, almost $20 million when you have the chance. There's a hard projectile that gets shot at 90 miles per hour a game on a regular basis. You're, you're wearing knives on your feet. Um, you know, it's a collision sport. Uh, careers are short. You know, the, the security matters a ton to a lot of guys. Yeah. And and that matters at the top end, and it matters at the low end. Like, one one guy that was interesting to me when I went through my Evolving Wild projections was uh, Matthew Highmore. They they, project, they projected Matthew Highmore's most likely settlement level at 920 k And I thought that was a little bit light, because I thought Matthew Highmore was really good this year. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, for wingers, he's one year away from unrestricted free agency, so he's he's got some leverage, but he doesn't have enough counting stats to really have like a strong no. arb case necessarily, even though he played a, t- a ton for this team. So, you know, that's a situation where I wonder, like, if you're the Canucks, do you consider do you consider going with some term at a relatively low ebb? Like if it's one two, right? Does Matthew Highmore play enough of the style you want? Are you are you interested enough? in the possibility that Highmore could have third-line upside? And would Highmore find that tempting if you were to offer, you know, hey, $4 million nearly. Yeah. You three, know, three over years three years. Or, or it's, you know, $1 million roughly over one. Is that something that, you know, Highmore and his agent, Alan Walsh, would, would consider strongly? I don't know. I, I'm not. This is not inside information. This is just like a situation I was wondering about. Is there a smaller version of that? But those are the same types of dynamics that apply to the Besser situation, to, to some of the higher stakes decisions. But they apply at all levels of the business. And there's ways that teams can use that to their advantage or get hooped by it, right? And, and that's sort of coming back to the cap analysis part. The cap can be a massive pain for you in building a team. Or it can work in your favor, Right. It's not a coincidence that in the flat cap era, the team that manages the cap best, and yes, in part, they manage it best by being over the cap but compliant. That's, part, that's part of managing the cap. Part of managing the cap. to do that. Not a coincidence that the team that won both Stanley Cups in the flat cap era was the team that managed the cap the best, the team that was structured the best. And, you know, this goes into something else that's worth talking about because Braden Point, right, signed a bridge deal. The same year that Brock Besser did. In fact, slightly before Brock Besser did, like two weeks. And that's the most successful bridge deal in the history of the league. <laughs> because, I mean, they've already won, what, uh, nine playoff rounds on Braden Point's bridge contract. The purpose of a bridge contract is to keep the cap hit low so that you can surround that player with as much talent as possible over the course of those years. And you know that the bill is going to be due. The Lightning have built this whole structure around how they do these deals, right? So Stamkos signed a bridge deal. Hedman signed a bridge deal. Kucherov signed a bridge deal. And then Stamkos decided to go and kind of test the market a little bit, right? Uh, Back then you had the courting period, so he didn't actually hit the market, but he went and he talked to other teams and he got pitched by the mayor of Toronto, among other people. And and certainly hurt out other teams before eventually going back to the Lightning. Victor Hedman signed shortly thereafter on the day that he was first eligible. Kucherov, mega extension the day that he was eligible. 
Andre Vasilevsky, major extension the day that he was eligible. And last summer, Braden Point signs the big extension the day that he was eligible. So it's like a promise, right? We're, we're, we're going to be a great team. There's going to be a chance to win here. You're going to get bridged. And yes, that sucks for you for three years. But the moment you are eligible, nine and a half times eight, nine and a half times seven, something like that for every single one of their up and coming core. And, and it's going to be interesting to see how they navigate that going forward because now you're going to have Cernak, you're going to have Sergeyev, you're going to have Sorelli. You're not going to be able to pay you, you can't all do of that those guys in perpetuity. But they've obviously done it with their most important players, and it's going to be fascinating to watch how the deal changes, right? Because it is a deal. It's a covenant with your players. Um, Vancouver, on the other hand, has not had that, right? So they bridge Brock, and for the cost of bridging Besser as opposed to having the cost certainty, they made the playoffs once, right? They bridge Pedersen, and so far, they were 10th in the Pacific in the first year. And I'm talking about this team being two years away from being great. Right, So in my estimation, what that implies is that the Canucks are very probably going to waste Pedersen's bridge, just like they wasted the last year of the entry-level contract in 2021. That's tough. That's tough. Especially because when you look at another team that won a playoff round recently, the Florida Panthers, right? Barkov's still at 5'9". His mega extension kicks in next year. Jonathan Huberto is below $6 million. He was second in the NHL in scoring. Ekblad's at 7-5. The benefits of the cost certainty that were locked in by the Panthers in the summer of 2016, right? That is, is what's permitted them to be an elite team this year. And that's not something that the Canucks are going to be able to lean on, in part because of the desperate win nowism that I rail against in my column today at The Athletic. Go read it. And, and that I railed about in the first segment. That's one of the big challenges. And that's one of the reasons why this team has to be circumspect. Like, one thing I'd love to see is for them to hash out a new deal. Like, you have to hash out that deal with your players. What does it look like in terms of your contract path with this team? Who is the guy who creates an internal sense of gravity that you have to come in underneath? Well, now it's probably going to be one of Miller, Horvat, or Patterson, mm-hmm. Right. And that's sort of the risk of this summer, too, as the team, you know, approaches negotiations with Miller and Horvat, who become eligible for their first extensions uh, or their extensions on the 13th, is if you lock in Miller at 9 or 8-5 or Horvat at 8, right, and then Pedersen outscores either of them over the next two years, well, you're going to blow up that framework again. You're not going to have signed the guys who can create a sense of gravity on Pedersen's third deal. That's a really problematic place to be. Another one of those tricky situations that Rutherford has to manage. And I think overall, as you look through what's next for this team, I do think coming up with that pipeline, coming up with that framework by which you manage the cap for your players, the deal that you have with your players in terms of how they take less, what that looks like, how you build around them. Um, how you convince them to leave money on the table. I, I heard Ryan Kessler, actually. Did you hear Ryan Kessler talking about the Leafs' core? No. And and he had, he made a great point. And he said, you know, one thing I don't like about that team's construction is your best players have to leave money on the table if they want to win. And the Leafs didn't. And And I just thought, that is the best criticism that I've heard of the Leafs' team construction, right? Everyone focuses on, like, well, you can't pay four players that much. It's like, everyone plays four players that much. Every team looks like that. Um, there's so much criticism on like too soft, too small, whatever. And I just don't believe any of that. They just went toe to toe with Tampa Bay 
They, they, they were one goal away in Game 7 and one goal away in Game 6 from eliminating them, right? Uh, that is an elite team for me. I, I, I don't buy any of that other stuff. Now, Kessler's point of view, however, as a player who took less to win and didn't, but nonetheless got real close, right? That, to me, was the most cogent criticism I'd heard. And selling players on that... I think is sort of the next test, particularly because that's an area where I think the Canucks are in a really dicey spot, right? You can't pay Horvat Miller and Pedersen full value and Brock Besser full value mm-hmm. with where this team is positioned and all the upgrades they need to make in terms of their forward depth and in terms of their blue line. You just can't, especially with the commitments made to, you know, Oliver Ekman, Larson and Myers and, and on and on down the list. This club's going to need to make some di- tough choices or... They're going to need to sell some of their best players on helping them out in service of a larger goal. And that sell job, ironically, becomes a lot easier if you're winning, right? Right. Like it becomes so much easier if things are actually going well. It's really, really hard to sell that when you're stuck in the mud all the time and, you're, and the players aren't seeing that payoff of, oh, hey, if we do this, it'll actually work out because they haven't seen it work out before. Uh, it, and it's another one of the opportunity costs of the pandemic and, the, and they're legion for this team, unfortunately. But one of them is the best time to to sign guys to extensions is after you've had some playoff success, right? Like if you're coming out of the bubble and you go to Pedersen and Hughes's camps, which at the time was still Michael Deutsch for Pedersen and, and CAA for Hughes. Like they hadn't both sort of gone over to the Pat Brisson, JP Barry access that happened sort of four months later. But if you go to them then, right. And say, look at what we're building. We want you guys to be core parts of it. That's the moment where you can get the best deals. That's the moment. And it's an opportunity that this club missed, uh, among many others, as a result of their approach to managing um, a really tough time for the business of professional hockey. Quickly, let's run through uh, the second round playoff series. We'll start uh, with the two that go tomorrow, Colorado and St. Louis. Feels like it's been a while since we've seen Colorado play, but uh, I don't know about you. I'm riding with the Avalanche, Colorado in six. They're going to they're gonna get out of the second round for the first time with this core. I think Colorado is a team that can be beat. I don't I don't really buy Colorado as a completely impenetrable juggernaut. I think a really good forechecking team is going to be able to give them serious issues. Serious issues because of how they play when Taves and Makar are not both on the ice. However, I don't think the Blues have that gear anymore. I just don't. I think the Blues do some stuff really well. In particular, the way that they generate high-quality chances in the slot with their passing game is the best in the league, but I think the Avs are going to be able to neuter that by mostly spending most of the game in the Blues' end. I think the I think the Avs are going to win in five. Florida and Tampa, the other one that gets going tomorrow. Now, I rode with Tampa and, and the veteran know-how of the back-to-back cup winners in round one. They rewarded me. They got the job done, but man, it was by the skin of their teeth Drancer. And with the Braden Point injury, uh, Kucherov doesn't look right to me. I don't know. I, I, I was as much as, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I picked them and they won. I didn't love what I saw from Tampa. So I'm taking Florida in seven in this one. I far preferred what I saw from Tampa than what I saw from the Florida Panthers. I thought the Florida Panthers struggled to play the game in front of them. I thought the one three one four check, uh, neutral zone four check, basically a trap that the Washington Capitals deployed, left them stymied, stuck in the mud. They couldn't get their five-man attack game going, at least not consistently enough. And I, I think the Tampa Bay Lightning are basically what the Washington Capitals are in terms of, like, you know, savvy in size, uh, but better, better, but way better, a premium version of that. Uh, I, I just think the I just, I just think the Lightning, having solved 
a, a really tough Toronto team. I, I think they're going to be able to solve Tampa or sorry, Florida. So I'm picking them to win on home ice in six. Uh, Calgary and Edmonton, the much ballyhooed Battle of Alberta on Wednesday. I really hemmed and hawed on this one because what Connor McDavid did to the LA Kings, especially in the tail end of that series, was absolutely phenomenal. He was a monster. He is the best player playing right now. All of that. But Calgary top to bottom is still better. So I'm taking Calgary in seven, but this was really close. I'm also picking Calgary in seven. All right, I, there you I, go. I definitely think I'm just concerned about the Flames offense. Like, I know that they control play and Ottinger was incredible. But again, when Mark Stone and Eric Branson combined for 25 plus shot attempts, I'm worried about your club's uh, ability to attack. And so uh, I'm worried. I'm worried that the Flames will not attack well enough against the Oilers for their massive edge in net to show up. And as a result, I think it goes seven, but I think that Calgary has a way through this. And by the way, I think Calgary is the only team out West that can stop the Avs. I think if Edmonton survives here, the Avs are going to the cup final. Calgary, though, I genuinely think can give the Avs a serious run. Yeah, I like I picked Calgary, but as I said, very, very difficult to pick against that version of Connor McDavid. Oh. If, he, if he brings that... Holy cow. Just, Let's hope he does, just because it would be good for the sport. Like, it's fun to watch Connor McDavid do this. Incredible to watch. Yeah. I, like, uh, the thing, quickly, we got one more series, but the thing that's really stood out to me is he's using his speed and his skating ability to make plays in the defensive end in that series as well, right? So all of a sudden, it's like he's everywhere on the ice, and he's playing half the game at 5 basically. He, he, he is in for a different challenge, a new challenge, though, with, oh, yeah. especially if he's going up against Tanev. Um, if he's going up against Hannafin, if he's going up against Rasmus Anderson, and if he's trying to finish on Jacob Markstrom, this is a materially different oh, yeah. challenge than the one he faced in round one. Uh, quickly, Carolina and New York. I will take the Hurricanes in six against the Rangers. Yeah, I've got the Hurricanes in five, and I'm betting that they outshoot the Rangers by an average of 10 shots per game. I think you're going to see a lot of 45 shots for the Hurricanes, 20 shots for the Rangers, and it might not matter, right? Like it, We know that it might not matter because it's playoff hockey, but I think the disparity in the ability to control games, the disparity in the detail that Rod Brindamore brings versus Gerard Gallant, I think it's going to be a massive golf, and I think we're going to see that. They get going tomorrow, the second-round playoff series. We will be back tomorrow to keep talking about them and the Canucks offseason. The People's Show with myself and Bick Nazar is up next. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.